This is the Italian American Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping Italian Americans learn about their heritage. We talk to experts, authors, and everyday Italian Americans on all things Italian from traditions, culture, food, genealogy, travel, and more. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and I have with me my co host, Dolores Alfieri. And today, we're going to get into my recent trip to Italy, digging up some of my ancestral roots to try to not just give you an idea of how I traveled through Italy, but give you some pointers on how maybe you can do the same and find some of your relatives. Dolores, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Anthony. Welcome back. Yeah, it's our first episode in a while where we're both in the United States, which I think for us is a good thing because there was all kinds of technical issues echoing, trying to find a Wi-Fi in Italy, yeah. which I learned quickly is difficult in Southern Italy, but... Well, for me, it's nice to have you back because, uh, you know, I I was actually, you know, saw your mother at some point when you were overseas. And I said, I didn't realize how much I speak to him until he was gone. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't text him or call him every time I needed to. She was cracking up laughing. So it's been nice. I will say, though, and I think for both of us, the podcast has been really been doing well lately. We've been getting a lot of emails from you, the listeners. We've been getting a lot of nice messages and we appreciate all the support. And, you know, we're just going to keep it going. We did have that feature in the journal news, which Dolores did a great job on when I wasn't here. And we've gotten so many contacts from people from that. So everything's been great. And we're excited to keep the show going. And today should be an interesting episode because I think, Dolores, this might be the first episode or one of the few where it's kind of just me and you for the main segment just talking. That's right. I just wanted our listeners to know that we uh, did we are coming out with t-shirts. The design is exciting. It's very close to being finalized. And we had asked our listeners via email and also on social media to help us choose a phrase to go in the t-shirt. So the overwhelming choice was prima la familia, family first, not surprisingly. So we're going to let you know, of course, when those t-shirts are out, but they'll, they'll be available soon. And we'll also have children's sizes because, of course, we know important instilling those family values are into our Italian-American children. And uh, also wanted to let people know that I just jarred tomatoes with my family this past weekend, and we are putting together a how-to video. So if you want to start the tradition with your families on how to jar tomatoes, which we highly encourage you to do. It's a beautiful tradition, one that uh, everyone in my family is always looking forward to. You can sign up for our newsletter, and we're going to send that video right out to you as soon as it's ready. And you can do that by visiting ItalianAmericanPodcast.com and clicking on the Join Us tab. All right, before we jump into the show here and get into my trip to Italy and also in the Italian American Stories segment, we're going to talk to Lou Del Bianco, whose grandfather worked on Mount Rushmore, and Lou's trying to get him some recognition. Before we do that, we'd like to offer a brief word from our sponsor, the National Italian American Foundation. I'm John Viola, president of the National Italian American Foundation, proud supporters of the Italian American podcast. At NEF, we know there's nothing more important than family, so we invite you to be part of ours. We work to protect our great heritage promote the Italian language, build stronger ties between Italy and the United States, and serve as your voice in our nation's capital. Most importantly, our scholarships provide young Italian-Americans help in earning a solid education. To find out more about how your support serves the community, visit us online at www.niaf.org and become part of the NIAF family today. 
This is Gabrielle Maletti, Director of Programs for the National Italian American Foundation, and here is your NIAF in the News. Don't miss out on the Italian American event of the year, the NIAF Anniversary Gala Weekend. Join us October 14th to the 16th as we celebrate our heritage in Washington, D.C. This year's 41st Anniversary Gala celebrates not only our region of honor, Piemonte, but also the accomplishments of some incredible members of the Italian-American family, including legendary NFL Hall of Famer Franco Harris, Joseph and Anthony Russo, Hollywood directors of the blockbusters Captain America Winter Soldier and Captain America Civil War, and Executive Vice Chairman and CEO of Walgreens Boot Alliance, Stefano Piscina. For more information on Gala Weekend and to purchase tickets, visit www.neaf.org. All right. To bring us into the main segment of our show, I'd like to offer you a quote that captures a little bit of my trip to Italy here, which goes as follows. One of the great joys of traveling through Italy is discovering firsthand that it is indeed a dream destination. And that's from Deborah Labinson. Now it's time for our main segment of today's episode of the Italian American podcast. And we're going to jump into my trip. I spent about a, over a month in Italy, just got back recently. And I went with the idea of, well, one, because we had family from the U.S. going over together to spend a week in Sicily for my uncle's birthday, but also because I wanted to connect with family relatives there that we had found. And what we're going to do here in this segment is I'm going to talk a little bit about my preparation for the trip and then get into the trip itself with the idea of if you're planning to do this, hopefully you can take some of these strategies that I've used to be successful. And also, of course, I just want to tell you stories about eating and having fun with the family in Italy, because I think that's part of what this podcast is about. So we're going to dive in here. The first thing I'll talk a little bit about is just the preparation and the pre-trip preparation. I'm sure, Dolores, you remember like way back on our first guest episode, we had Mary Tedesco and we talked about genealogy research and we talked about things that you should do. And really, I did some of the things that Mary talked about in that episode. And really, one of the first things I did was talking to relatives going to my grandma's like we like you've heard if you're if you've been a listener for a while you've heard excerpts from my grandmother of me sitting at her table and I asked her information and and some of the important information that you need to get if you want to try to track down family in Italy is obviously names which isn't always so obvious because often names change but you have to do your best to get names birth years are critically important for those ancestors that were born in Italy. And the death year can also be important if that person is died in Italy. If they if they immigrated to the US, then the death year is not going to help you. But you know, like I went back in some cases to my great great grandparents that both were born and died in Italy and I was able to get some information. And the towns where the person was born is a very, very important thing if you want to go and get the records, of course. And just any other information you can get from from talking to your relatives. And I think that beyond just getting this information, talking to them, you can learn a wealth. And I think, Dolores, we had someone recently who emailed us just saying that he started talking to his relatives from listening to the podcast and he learned like so much stuff. Yeah, we did. We get letters like that in every now and again. And, you know, just this weekend, actually, when we were getting ready to do the tomatoes on Saturday, the day before everybody came over, it was just me and my mother. And you have to you have to wash the tomatoes, you know, in preparation before you start jarring them. 
And we were out there just, you know, big buckets of water in front of us, rinsing the tomatoes. And we were just talking. And I started asking her about, you know, when she used to do this back in Italy. And she was telling me stories. And my point is that in the course of just talking to her, at some point she goes, you know, Ninin, which is one of our my cousins, she sent me a picture of your great-grandfather. Hmm. I said, you have a picture of my great-grandfather? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, yeah, I never told you. No, you never told me, which is strange because, you know, you'd, you'd think she'd come calling me right away and say, I have a picture of your great-grandfather. But, you know, what happens is it's not like she was trying to withhold information from me, but life just happened. Right. People forget to tell you. It doesn't come up. So it reminded me of how important it is to take time to actually sit with people and talk to them because it's the only way you, you're going to find out any information. It's just by talking and asking and asking people to tell you stories. It's not that they don't necessarily want to share it. It's just if you don't make a space for it to come up, it won't. Exactly. That's exactly it. You need to take the time. You need to make it a priority. And then exactly what Dolores just said is what happens. You find out things all of a sudden that you never would have found out if you didn't have that conversation not because her mom was hiding it, but because everything else is going on. So exactly. that's a perfect point. So after I talked to relatives and gathered information, I did a little bit of online research. I actually used Ancestry.com. There's other websites like it really that will, can get you more documentation. And the biggest help that Ancestry.com was for me was to getting the ship manifests of my great-grandparents that came to the U.S. Because when you get the manifest from the ship, it usually tells you like the town they're from. It can give you some relatives. It can tell you a little bit more information about them. And again, really nailing down the town is important where they came from. Now, there's also a whole bunch of other interesting stuff you can get through these kind of websites. Like I found my great-grandfather's draft card where he wrote it out himself and his occupation and things like that. That was really interesting. Wow. Yeah, he had he was a self-junk dealer. At least that's what he wrote. And then I, you know, my grandma remembered some stuff, which was cool. But as far as going to Italy and finding them, you know, it's mainly the towns and the birth years. So that, that's the information you're going to need. Then what I did after that was I tried to connect with family by doing a search online. And there's different, you could just really Google it and look for websites where you can put in someone's name and town in Italy and they'll return the results of like an address and a phone number, which was interesting. Huh. So like, for example, Fasano... My great-grandfather's from the town of Controne in Campania, and I typed that in, and I found one Fasano named Antonio Fasano, actually, that lived in the town, and I wrote him a letter that I was coming, and I wanted to find out about my great-grandfather that was born there, and I'll tell you more about the result of that later, but that's basically was the next step for me, was sending out a bunch of letters, and what I did in those letters, I wrote them in Italian using the Google Translate, and I included my Facebook URL on there, figuring that if any of these people actually have Facebook, they can contact me through that. And that did happen. I was contacted by a couple of different people, um, one family member in the Salerno area, and then one family member in Sicily who contacted me through Facebook. We connected with them, and then I spent the past year getting to know them, talking with them, figuring out how we related. I was just going to say, how, how did you know that you were related? So... In both instances, my family had had some kind of contact with these people in the past. Like my grandma's sister had known that, that they came from a farm in the Salerno area and she had visited once a long time ago, but they did, there wasn't a lot of other recollection. Mm. 
So the cousin on Facebook that connected with me had a picture of when my grandma's sister visited there. Okay. Wow. So that kind of confirmed that that was them. And, you know, we have some documentation from the area and the town that kind of confirmed it. So that was that one. And then the other one, one of my, my mother's cousins, my, my mother's side's from Sicily, my mother's cousins had also had an opportunity to visit the town for about an hour, like eight years ago. And she happened to hook up with the family somehow. And so she remembered it and kind of had some documentation and, and that helped us to piece it together. It was pretty awesome. So I actually had the opportunity to connect with these people and talk to them for about a year before I left, which I think definitely made a big impact on the trip. Right. The next thing that I decided to do was to learn Italian. I mean, these these relatives don't speak any English. Nowadays, the kids in Italy are learning English in school, but most of the relatives there are either my age or older, except for one of them had some young kids that were learning English. But really, you need to know Italian. You need to know some Italian to be able to really connect with them, in my opinion. And so I spent about the last year in planning for the trip, learning Italian, which, you know, worked out really well and really helped me to be able to communicate. And then the last thing that I did kind of pre-trip, which I was doing literally like the day before I left, of course, was typing out all the information that I had for each great grandparent in Italian so that I can print it and bring it to the commune, which is the municipality there, and just hand it to someone as opposed to me trying to explain that I have a relative here that was born in this year, et cetera, et cetera. So I actually typed all that out in Italian, my great-grandfather's name, the birth year, this is what I know about him or her. Do you have any records? So that was like my pre-trip planning. So now I'm leaving for Italy and I've made contact. I'm talking to family. I know I'm going to visit them and I've got some information, years, et cetera, to bring there. So fast forward, now we leave and we go to Italy. And you know the first thing, obviously, is to visit the towns of where your ancestors are from. And I recommend allowing multiple days if possible. I know a lot of people do a day trip or they might take a ride through the town. But really, if you want to try to connect with people, with relatives, you're going to need more than a day. I know that's not always possible, but if it is, or at least like stay somewhere near it. Like if if you're near a major city, maybe you can stay there and then take trips multiple times. You also need to know when the municipality and the records office is open. And I, I made this mistake, which... You know, my wife yelled at me for (laughs) we were staying in Sorrento for a few days and we were going to drive down to Salerno where my family's from uh, closer to their farm. And we I wanted to stop in my great grandparents town of Sarno where they were born. So I told them, we'll stop on the way. I'll go to the records office. So we get there at one o'clock and the records office closed at noon that day. You'll stop on the way, just pop in, get yeah, the records and keep just, going. Just pop in. <laughs> Very American. Speak broken Italian, get all my <laughs> records out, get everything I need. That makes me laugh because I've actually, I, I know about the comune and the way it works. So that's funny. You should have told me beforehand. I would have, I would have warned you. I didn't even think about it. Well, Jill, of course, warned me a million times. Oh. And I'm just like, yeah, well, you know, it, it'll be fine. We'll just pop in, you know. So make sure you just know you call ahead of time or go on the website and see when the records office is open. And there's a reason that you need to know when the records office is open. And Dolores, maybe you could talk about that. Well, everything shuts down in southern Italy for a couple hours in the afternoon and people go home and and they go have lunch and they take a nap. It's still very much the tradition of how things are done there. And then even when they are open... There's a stereotype that, like many stereotypes, has a kernel of truth to it. 
which is that, you know, these are government jobs, you know, people who have them have them for pretty much all their lives. So really, they're not like in this crazy rush to get things done necessarily, or to, you know, efficiently help you. It's like Michaela Malozzi said in the episode we aired a couple of weeks ago, she said, it's like island time. Yeah, it's right. And when Dolores says shut down, I mean, literally this town of Sarno, all of the shops, they pull the metal doors down. Exactly. It's literally a ghost town. Yeah, you can't get anything done. You can't get anything. You can't go anywhere. You can't really see anybody. So it is important. You know, you don't want to go to the town when it's a ghost town. You want to go there when it's vibrant, when there's people, you can talk to people. So definitely check that out. You want to learn enough Italian, like I said before, to ask the right questions. So if you're not studying Italian intensely for a year, kind of like I did to become very conversational, you at least want to understand some of the key terms that you can use in the records office. So you can talk to someone and, you know, maybe like street or where or when or, you know, year or even the numbers. You know, like they start rattling off numbers like Mil Novacheni. You're like, whoa, 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 I don't know what it is, you know? Yeah. So it's good to get a little bit of that under your belt strategically for that. Like I said, present the birth year of your relatives, which I did, and then try to get the certificate. If you can get a birth certificate, I was able to get birth certificates stamped. I got a death certificate. My grandma told me that her grandfather, she believed, died in the Battle of Salerno in 1943. So I took a shot. I had his name and I said 1943. And sure enough, they found his death certificate. And it had a whole bunch of information on it, like where he lives and all this stuff on it and like two pages. So you really never know what you can come up with if you gather some information and then go there. And then once you have those certificates, you start to get so much more information. Like usually it lists their parents and their names, addresses. So you can go to the address and take photos. And I'll give you a couple specific stories here in a second. But you could take photos and, and show your relatives back home. Like this is where, you know, our great grandfather was born which gets to be really amazing. And then the last point, which Mary, I remember Mary Tedesco specifically talking about is going just into the local coffee shop. Cause I had done that. I did that as well. I went into the local coffee shop. The first thing I said is I'm American. My great grandfather was born here. And the first thing that they do is they ask you your name. You tell them the name like, Oh yeah. In fact, when I did that, the person at the coffee shop said, you know what? There was a Pachulo here this morning. She came in to get coffee, Ba -ba -ba -ba, we start talking. And then sure enough, I sit outside to have coffee and the same woman walks by again, ends up being potentially like a distant relative who's a lawyer and I have her information now. Wow. That's on your mother's side, right? That's on my mother's side. Yeah. So yeah. it's it don't even think that if you can't get a record in the records office that you're not going to be able to find anything. If you're pretty certain that they're from this town, you can go to a coffee shop and give your last name of the, the relative you're looking for. And there's a very good opportunity someone's going to know something. It's just the way they operate. I mean, you know how it is, Dolores. Everybody knows everybody in these towns. Well, it's and, a small town. And yeah. use travels. And then last couple of points is you want to be wary as well. You're not just going to go there. I'm American. I'm looking for relatives. People could tell you anything. They could tell you like, oh yeah, you know, come here, do this. So, I mean, you have to kind of just be a little bit street smart about it. And I didn't have this problem at all, but I just heard that there could be a problem like that of someone maybe leading you astray or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, you know, someone's thinking you're American. <laughs> maybe you have some money. Maybe they- Oh, I see what you're getting at. You know okay. what I'm saying? Yes. Like, oh, we yeah, could just- Yeah, you want to be smart. Yes. Yeah. Like, we could yeah. just tell this guy he's my relative and, you know, whatever. Tell him we need right. $200 because we're poor. And so ah, just yeah. be aware of stuff like that. And then the last point I'll say, and then I'll get into a couple stories is just don't short yourself on time. I know that's not always easy, but- if you're going to make a trip like this, it's probably going to be a once in a lifetime or something that you're not going to do extremely often. 
So, you know, give yourself breathing space. I know with a lot of these trips, you want to cram a lot of stuff in. My wife and I looked at our itinerary a couple of times and we ended up cutting out a few kind of tourist towns. Like, for example, we didn't end up going to Palermo because we wanted to spend more time in southeastern Sicily where my family was coming, which, which ended up being great because we're not always on the go. So those are essentially kind of the, I guess, more of the strategies or tips. But now just to give you a couple of stories of kind of what happened for me. So when I did go to Sarno, which is where my grandma's parents are from, the grandma that you've heard mostly on this podcast, I went into the records office and I gave the information, the birth year, and literally the gentleman goes into this huge room. He pulls out these massive books and each book has one year on it. He takes it out and he starts finding information for me. This was where they found both great-grandparents' birth certificates and stamped them for me. And they also found my great-great-grandfather's death certificate in 1943, which was amazing. I was able to bring them back and show them to my grandmother, which she really liked. I still need to try to interpret them a little bit because there are addresses in there, but I couldn't really read them. But at this point in time, even if I could figure them out now, I could still go on Google and get, a, get an idea of the house and the street and stuff like that, Yeah, which will be pretty cool. The other part that I wrote about in the recent article when I went to Controne, which is where my great-grandfather Antonio Fasano is from, who shares my name, what was interesting about that trip to the records office was I had documentation that basically said that my great-grandfather was born in 1892. I also had documentation from the ship manifest that said that he arrived in the United States in 1912 at the age of 23. So I gave them this 1892 and they're looking and I had a couple of my relatives there and they're trying to help and look and they're not finding anything. So I'm thinking to myself, I came to this little place in the mountains. I'm going to basically go home with nothing. But then sure enough, they were looking at my documentation and they tracked the 1912 from the 23 and it came up as 1889. So sure enough, they pulled out the 1889 book and they found Antonio Giorgio Fasano, which was amazing. And so you have to just gather as much information as you can. and you know, you'll find information. And we never knew that my great grandfather had a middle name, Giorgio. And the interesting thing about it is we have quite a few cousins like in the Fasano side and no one has that name. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's interesting now that this is like a whole nother name that maybe we can introduce into the family or that we just didn't know about, which is really cool. That's right. But what was funny is that I told the story in the article. I don't need to tell the whole story, but I did find a distant cousin, Anthony Fasano, who helped me do this. And sure enough, his wife said to me, you know, you're here. You have to bring your family back Friday night for dinner. They kept saying like Vanardi, Chena, Chena. I'm like, okay. So it's funny, Dolores, because this was like a Tuesday. There's no cell phones. They're in the mountain. There's 800 people in the town. Here I am, my wife and stuff like, I don't know, do we need to confirm with these people? You know, it's Tuesday. My wife's like, no, if they told you Friday night dinner, just I guess we just show up for dinner Friday night. Right. So sure enough, (laughs) my other relative drove us back through the mountains we went there. We had dinner. The name Fasano was on the house. I had my family. And the first thing that he did, like when I went in, he had the letter that I had. Remember, I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I sent the letter to the Fasano that I found in that town. He had the letter kind of sitting in his living room on his table that I had sent him about six to nine months ago with the picture of my family and the information in it, which was really cool. And what was also cool was that when I did go to the records office with him, they wouldn't actually, for some reason in that town, they wouldn't give me the birth certificate. But he actually was able to go back and get me a stamp copy and he presented it to me like when we had dinner together and it was cool. I mean, the dinner was great. You know, they had like the mozzarella and all the meats and they also ordered like a ton of pizza, yep. which I think was, was because, you know, they were afraid that they might run out of food. Yeah. 
we had a very nice dinner. We had a great time with them. And they, of course, they said, come back and they took my address. So that was really great. It was just, you know, for the kids to see the words Fasano on the house and to be up in the mountains kind of. And they, they took us for a tour all over the town. And we did actually get to go to the street there where my great grandfather was born. We took pictures. It was, the, the actual house itself is no longer there. Like the number isn't there, but the street is there. And he showed it to me. And that was just like awesome. And it wasn't really, I mean, I didn't do a ton of research. I did a couple of things that I talked about here and I was able to find them. The last story that I'll tell here is from my mom's side in Sicily. Uh, like I said, I had connected with someone there too. And we'd been talking for a while and we, we went to see them and it was amazing. I, I mean, I got to tell you, these people... Obviously, we are family, but they took us in like family that they've known their whole life. Every night, it was either making us dinner, taking us to dinner. Every day, they were taking us to cities to look at. They took us to down to a nice river to go swimming in. And then one day, kind of someone that would be equivalent to my mother in age, she took me to basically the cemetery where my great-great-grandparents were were buried with their pictures there. I got footage of all this. Wow. She took me to the two houses where my great-grandparents were born. One of them is now a parking lot, but the other one is still a, like a restaurant now. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. She walked me through the house and told me where everything was. Like, this is where they sold fruit in the front. This is where they ate dinner. This is where she slept. That's amazing. Which was completely amazing. Just like kind of really blown away by all that. Of course. And this is all footage that, you know, Dolores and I are going to start developing more videos. And I have all this footage that we'll be able to share with you over time. But what I think that what was the coolest thing, Dolores, about everything is that, you know, I felt very connected to these people. You know what I mean? Like immediately. Mm. I don't know if it's a little hard to describe, but basically I felt like I knew these people forever. I felt like it was just a relative here that you feel very close. So you would go up and you'd see him, you'd say hello, you'd kiss him. Hello. I felt like with these people, I've been seeing them for years. You know what I mean? Yes. And my Italian, like I said, is conversational, limited conversational. And this is in Sicily now. So it's a very different dialect, of course. But I understand everything this woman who is about 64 years old, her name was Nunzia. I understood pretty much everything she said to me, whether it was through the language or through her actions or through, you know, whatever it was that she was doing. There was absolutely no failure to communicate. And I think that was also part of maybe being connected to her being able to communicate with someone like this where you really don't really speak truly that language kind of tells you something. And I tell you, when I first saw her, even like the way she looked at me and she, it was kind of like she's been waiting for me for years. Uh, you know, sangue riconosce il sangue. Yeah. Blood recognizes blood. That's right. That's exactly right. Like the mm -hmm. post that you wrote not too long ago. About blood memory. About yep. the blood memory and... We kind of got this from her and her talking was that she was saying, like, this is my first connection to my family outside of here. Mm. This is like her grandmother's sister left. Right. You're here in America thinking, uh, you know, I'm American. I want to get back in touch with my Italian roots. But you don't think about the fact that you have Italian relatives who are thinking, you know, I have family outside of this small little place that's pretty much all I know and how amazing that is for them to meet this American family that's their relatives. That's exactly right. It's just as enormous and moving to them as it is for you. Right. And just so you can kind of think about what she was thinking, this woman Nunzia, so basically her grandmother had three sisters and one brother, and all of them emigrated out of Sicily. And one of them happened to be my great-grandmother. So basically, her whole family, her grandmother's family, they all left. Right. 
and then her line stayed in Sicily. So this is like kind of her first interaction with someone else of her, all these people that left. Right, a whole other branch of her family that she she didn't get to know because they, they left. Yeah. Exactly. And another thing that's interesting, of course, is there's definitely resemblance between our family and their family as it's far as... so the, cool. I mean, it's yeah. so amazing. Yeah. The way people look and that kind of stuff. So... That connection, you know, that you're talking about where you just you just said, you know, I don't know, I just felt like I'd known her forever. It's so mysterious. I mean, it's why I wrote that post about blood memory. As I write about in the post, we've talked about this a lot, this feeling, and I, I didn't have a term until we spoke to Michaela Melozzi, and she, she said blood memory. It wasn't even a term I knew, and I just jumped on it. I thought, my God, that's exactly it, you know? Yeah. That's what it is. It's memory in your blood that knows and I am fortunate enough, of course, to have been to Italy many times uh, growing up. I used to go with my parents and I still have cousins, aunts, uncles there. And it's interesting because I didn't grow up with these cousins. I don't see them terribly often. You know, basically, unless I go to Italy, I don't see them because they don't really come here. I don't talk to them all the time, you know. So in short, what I'm saying is they're not a big part of my everyday life. But for some reason... Whenever I go to Italy and it's time to say goodbye, we're all crying. Yeah. We're all in tears, even though you, you would think you'd be accustomed to this. What's the big deal? You don't see each other anyway. You know what I mean? Right. But there's something, it's like an inexplicable feeling that comes over everybody. And it's not just like I'm crying because I'm Dolores and I'm sensitive and, you know, everybody is. You can't help it. It's like, you know, that your family and you're, you feel it in your blood that you're being separated. Yeah. And it's emotional. It definitely is. And happens every time. I know exactly what you mean, because that's exactly what I was experiencing, especially with this woman, Nunzia, who I felt like I'd known her forever, like forever. It wasn't like it was just seeing her for the first time. It was like, you know, I've known this woman for years. So the bottom line is, is go do this if you can. And please don't think that you don't have relatives there because you, number one, you never know because the families obviously multiply and these towns aren't that big and you could typically find people or find records of them or something or people that are going to know them if you go to the town and, and whether they're there or not. And it can really be like a life changing experience and something, especially like for me with my kids. I was just going to ask you how the kids feel and how they do with the kids there. I mean, the kids were great. My one relatives have a farm in Salerno and the kids were basically like loving it with the animals. They were just, you know, and again, it was just like communication without language. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is really cool. And then my relatives in Sicily, they had a 16 year old and a 12 year old and the kids got along great. I mean, the 16 year old did speak some English, but I mean, the kids just, they didn't need the language. They were just playing yeah. together and they, they didn't want to leave them basically when we left. Wow, that's beautiful. So are you going to stay in touch with your Italian relatives? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, the two of them that I've been talking to on Facebook for the past year, I'm still talking with them now. There's a possibility. I'm hoping that they might come here next, at least some of them. Wow. And then I'm sure we'll, we're going to be going back there in a few years. I mean, it's just the kids really loved it. Being on the farm with them, I mean, both of the families in Sicily and in Salerno region had farms and they had stuff that they grow and animals. And I think that that's cool, too, because that's kind of like your self-sustaining Sure. Which I think is like an Italian-American thing. We try to do things on our own. We try to be self-sustaining. And so that was also a pretty cool cool part of it. Like I want to start expanding my garden and stuff. Right. They inspired you to, to do some of that yourself. Exactly. It's great. Well, you know what? To recap, 
we talk so much on the show. Anthony and I grew up in the same town, but we grew up differently, right? So here I have these connections to these towns back in Italy, but Anthony, you didn't really. And with a little legwork, a little ingenuity, and, you know, putting yourself out there and making it happen, you have now reconnected your entire family to Italy. That's right. You have literal connections through the relatives that you've met. You now have invitations to return. You know, you've really made it happen. You've done what so many Italian-Americans want to do. And it's not just one trip and now it's done. You've just established this for the rest of your life and for your children's lives if they want to continue the connection. Yeah. It's amazing. No, it is. I'm, I'm excited about it. I guess when you say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't thought of that? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. No, but it is true because this Sunday actually is my grandfather's 90th birthday and we're having a party at his house and I'm excited to be able to bring the photos and tell people about the farm and, you know, and let them know, bring his, my great grandfather's birth certificate. So these are things that you can bring back and share with your family here. So they have a little bit of an understanding too of, of kind of where we came from, which I think is awesome. So those things are terrific and I love those things. But what's even just as terrific is the living connection that you've just made. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The living connection and talking to these people and keeping up with them and building these relationships, which is really amazing, actually. It's beautiful. All right. Well, that was a little bit of a recap of my trip. And if you have any questions or you want to bounce things off me, just email me at anthony at italianamericancentral.com. I'd love to share anything else I can. And I will also continue to share stuff about the trip through our blog, through writing articles. And also, as I mentioned, Dolores and I are really going to start to try to provide you some videos because we do want to trying to capture the Italian American experience in as, as many ways as we can. We know that it is a kind of a 3D, I guess you could say a 3D experience. That's right. And we want to bring that to you. So I guess it's time now to jump into our Italian American story segment. Now it's time for our Italian-American stories segment of the episode. This is the part of the show where we try to bring you back to your family gatherings, conversations, and we try to play a recording or a story from one of our listeners or from one of our own relatives or even read something that a listener may have submitted. And in this segment, we actually have a very touching story from a gentleman, Lou Del Bianco, whose grandfather was essentially the main carver from Mount Rushmore and wasn't getting the recognition. So before we jump into Lou's story, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this segment, Select Italy. Select Italy is the ultimate source for travel to Italy and offers a wide array of superior Italian travel products and services, including customized itineraries, fascinating tours, romantic getaways, unique and fun culinary classes, yacht charters, transportation, hotel reservations, villa bookings, tickets for museums and musical events, and more. All right, here's Lou. Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So Lou has an interesting story. His grandfather worked on Mount Rushmore and Lou's doing some work to try to get his grandfather's work recognized. But I want Lou to tell us, Lou, tell us about your grandfather, about his work and some of the things you're trying to do to get him recognized. My grandfather was Luigi Del Bianco and he was an Italian immigrant who was a classically trained stone carver in the, in the tradition of Michelangelo a very gifted artist. And he was hired by the designer of uh, Mount Rushmore, Gus and Borglum, to be the only chief carver, the only one capable of giving the faces what Borglum called the refinement of expression. 
you know, the, the quality in the face that made them seem so lifelike. And this was something only an artist could do. 99% of the uh, people who worked on Rushmore were all untrained miners who lost their job during the Depression, and Borglum hired them, and uh, between himself and my grandfather, trained these guys to drill and carve. So not only was my grandfather finishing the faces, putting the finishing on the faces, but he was uh, mentoring and, and teaching the other workers how to carve these faces. Unfortunately, Mount Rushmore has chosen to take all the 400 people who worked on it, ranging from laborers who move stone or secretaries who type memos, and put them all together in one group and acknowledge them as the, quote, workers that brought the mountain to life. Gus and Borglum and his son Lincoln are the only ones that are separate from the group and given credit. And again, I, I don't mean to disparage a laborer or a secretary. They all contributed in their own way. But you can't tell me that you're going to put somebody in the same category as my grandfather, you, you know, someone who uh, typed a memo as opposed to someone who put soul into the eyes of Lincoln. Well said. So before we kind of get into that aspect a little bit more, let's step back a minute. When you were growing up, did you know this story in your family? Because, you know, you didn't know it in history books. So did you know it as a family story? Well, I was very young when my grandfather died, but uh, I come from a family of seven, six sisters, one boy. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> I usually get my <laughs> And I survived. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we used to do the Sunday visit to my grandfather. He lived right in town. And because I was his only grandson and his namesake, he made such a big deal out of me. So I have very strong, strong images of him in bed. You know, he was the first person I remember hugging me. He was very sick at this time, though, because working with Stone for many years gave him silicosis, which is a terrible lung disease, where the lungs are so filled with with uh, dust that it, they, they just turned to stone eventually and uh, wow. they just can't breathe anymore. But he was still such a vital guy. And one of my clearest memories was, um, was him taking me to a marble bust that he carved of himself. And it's on my website. I can tell you about the website later. And it, I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I ever saw. And he would take my little hands and I would feel the profile, you know, bursting to life. And then he would take me by the shoulders and he would say, Hey, I am Luigi. You are Luigi. And I just feel like that connected us, bonded us. Yes, of and course. You know, and, even, and, you know, I was listening listen to one of your episodes. And by the way, I just love this. I'm going to listen to all of them when I get the chance. Oh, Talk that's great. Blood memory. I don't know if this <laughs> fits into that, but that moment just created a connection that, you know, never left me. And so... When he died, I was only six, seven years old, but uh, when I was in second grade, I found this brochure with the president's heads on it. I had no idea what it was. And I asked my mother, what is this? And she told me that, you know, Grandpa was the head carver on Mount Rushmore and blah, blah. And this is the first I had ever heard of it. My jaw just dropped and I, I was such a shy little boy. But when I heard this, it, it brought me back to that connection with him. And I was like, can I show this to my class at school? And so I held that brochure, and I never spoke at all in public. I was terrified, but knowing this, I was so proud that I said, I want to tell you about my grandpa. And uh, from then on, I would take that brochure and look through it at home and try to find him, you know? And I couldn't. I was like, oh, is that him? No, no, he's too small, or no, he's too tall, or he's too heavy. And really, in a way, for the past 45 years, 
I've been looking for him. You know, it started in that brochure because the uh, most publications and Rushmore itself have kind of had him hidden. And it's funny, Dolores, because we were talking about this blood memory earlier on in the episode, and Lou just talked to us about his grandfather. It sounded like he knew his grandfather for 30, 40 years, and then he tells us that he was six when his grandfather passed away. <laughs> right, because that connection was there. Do you think that your family took this contribution of your grandfather almost for granted, like, oh, it was just work? No, no, I have okay. to tell you, my family was uh, very, very proud of, of what he did. My Uncle Caesar in particular was extremely proud of um, what his father did. My Uncle Caesar was very much, you know, a very well-read, literate man and loved, very proud of his heritage and Italian culture, science. And the fact that his grandfather, that his father was, was an artist was uh, something that uh, made him burst with pride. My father had a kind of a more, I don't want to say typical because I don't want to generalize, but more of a typical blue-collar attitude about my, my grandpa, my father wasn't as interested in, in art the way my Uncle Caesar and my Uncle Silvio were. So it was kind of mixed. So in a way, yes, yes, it was, it kind of, it depended on who, who in the family you talk to about it. That makes sense. Lou, how did you find out how important of a role your grandfather played? Was it just from talking to like your uncles and your family members or? No, I, I really, we really didn't know the extent of his involvement until I was a young guy back in the 80s. I was pursuing my career. So, you know, my grandfather was set in the background, but my uncle Caesar wanted to find out how important his father was. So uh, a book came out in 1985 called The Carving of Mount Rushmore by Rex Allen Smith. And this is still today considered to be the definitive book on Mount Rushmore. If you want to learn about the carving of the mountain, you read this book. With one exception, though, when my uncle Caesar finished the book, his father wasn't mentioned once. Mm. It's as if he didn't exist. That's incredible. It was, it was all about these. Well, the hook of this book was about how, wow, you know, these untrained miners were taken and Borglum groomed them and trained them to carve these faces. And that became like the hook of the book. And um, I guess my grandfather didn't figure into that hook because he was like this ringer <laughs> bought in from New York to do the finishing and to train these guys. Well, my, my Uncle Caesar was so furious that he, he I, I can re remember, I could, I could still hear him saying, you know, that's like talking about the Yankees and not mentioning DiMaggio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, my Uncle Caesar was a character. You would have loved him. But, um, anyway, mm. <laughs> so we talked about this one Christmas, you know, over Antipasto, and uh, I had always wanted to go to Mount Rushmore, so I, I said, I'm going to go, and Caesar didn't want to. He, he couldn't fly. He was too afraid. And uh, I went to Rushmore in 88 and asked them about my grandfather, and they showed me this plaque. And there it is. It was his name on the plaque. But so was the guy who operated the uh, tram. You know, with all due respect, doesn't take a lot of training and expertise and skill. It's basically pushing a button on and off. And um, this made no sense to me. And so I actually did some research, and I found some valuable documents where already he's being talked about as a trained carver, bought in to assist Borglum to finish the faces. And I talked uh, to an author out there who, and I asked him why he didn't mention Luigi in his book about Borglum. And he said, it, he, your grandfather just didn't figure into my story. Every author has his approach. And he kind of hinted and said, you know, maybe your family should write your own book. And he also said, if you want to find out what your grandfather did, you need to go to the Library of Congress. There are papers written by Borglum in the manuscript division. 
And uh, when I told my Uncle Caesar, that's what we did. We made four separate trips, he and I, and then he made two separate trips with uh, his friends. And when we went into the manuscript division that day, he made it very clear to me that um, he needed to do the research himself, which hurt me in a way because I had been looking for him too, you know. This was my grandfather's son, and he must have had a strong reason for feeling this way. And you know what? It worked out because he was like a monk in that room, and he found the most amazing uh, writings from Borglum talking about how uh, my grandfather's worth more than three, any three men in America for this type of work. He's the only besides myself who understands the language of the sculptor. He outclassed and embarrassed everyone on the mountain with his skill and knowledge. And he's the only one besides myself who, who uh, knows the problems on the mountain and how to solve them. And you should know that there are two instances while reading these documents where my grandfather quit. He threatened to quit the first time because he wasn't getting paid what he, what he was told. And Borglum writes about how the minute he hired my grandfather, that the people in Rapid City, the office, the people in power, didn't want him. It was petty dickering about wages. And he said my grandfather would never come again because of the way he was treated. But he needs my grandfather so badly. And again, this is all documented in the Library of Congress, letters that he wrote to the commission. He said, you know, we've got to keep Bianco and keep him happy. If we had two of him, we would double our progress. You pay him this amount of money and I'll pay the rest out of my pocket because his ability to understand the work is much too important. And so my grandfather stays and then later on quits again. And Borglum says the work on Washington and Jefferson will have to stop. So he's so important and so crucial to the work. He's the only trained carver on the work, the only classically trained carver on the work. And the fact that the, the most definitive book on Rushmore doesn't mention him. Is such a head scratcher. So all of these things come into play about, you know, was it bigotry? Was it, you know, here's a guy who wasn't even from this country. He speaks in broken English. He's getting the top pay on the mountain, $1.50 an hour. <laughs> nice. Yes, that was good pay for the Depression. I'm sure. He doesn't really, uh, he doesn't associate socially with uh, the other workers, although they do respect him and he, he does teach a lot of them. I have interviews with workers saying, you know, you can see what you've got up there when you look at Mount Rushmore. That's what Luigi he put the life in those faces. The other guys did the kind of the rough carving, but he put the soul into them. But what, you know, there, there are so many wonderful family stories about how my grandfather, um, you know, he missed uh, his family so much that in 35, he brings my grandmother and my father and my two uncles to live in South Dakota. So this New York Italian family <laughs> is uprooted and goes into an area where there are no Italians yeah. <laughs> at all. It's 1935. You know, you've got the Al Capone and Lucky Luciano and all these, you know, gangsters right. and the shadows. God knows what people thought. I, I really don't know. Yeah. But, um, you know, my father and uncles had a wonderful time. They swam in lakes. They built fires in the woods. They saw Indians. You know, it was like an adventure. My mother couldn't stand being out there. She'd go <laughs> to the general store. They had no escarole. <laughs> and no. literally had to get all their Italian ingredients shipped from New York to make, make Italian meals. Best part of that experience was that even though my grandfather didn't mix socially with the workers, he formed a close bond with the local tribe of Indians on Pyrant Reservation. Hmm, that's interesting. 
and this kind of mix of Italian and Native American cultures kind of meshed. He became a blood brother with the chief of the tribe. My father became a blood brother with the sons of the chief, and my father, oh, to the day he died, he showed me that scar on his thumb. What an incredible story. This is like a whole other race now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here's the best. Here's the best. Every Sunday, my grandfather and my grandmother and my uncle and fathers would go to the reservation, and my mother would cook macaroni and gravy for like 60 Native Americans. Stop oh it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> See that, Dolores? She made gravy. And they loved her gravy. And she made sauce. Gravy sauce. I know. I, that's a whole other discussion, right? You probably have a podcast dedicated to that. You open a can of worms there. So it got to a point where they loved it so much, she taught them how to make it. They <laughs> started making the gravy on their own. And my grandfather made little a little busts of the Indians because he loved their faces and he loved the way they looked and he loved their way of life. And he put them at ease because they were shunned from society. And maybe he was an outsider. So that's how that's what brought them together. You know, that's my that's kind of like the way I saw, see it, you know. It's kind of interesting. You know, he was kind of an outsider. They were outsiders. I was just thinking this is our story segment, and that's one of the best stories that I feel like we've heard. You know, yeah. It's definitely <laughs> up there. That's incredible. You, you can't make this stuff up. You really No. Can't. I mean, it sounds like you have such a rich a rich cachet of all these amazing stories. It's yeah. terrific. Such a such an eccentric history, you know, and, and so monumental, no pun intended. Yeah, right. Um, so what is your kind of ultimate goal here in terms of what you're trying to do by speaking out and speaking about your your grandfather? Well, when we compiled all of these this documentation, and by the way, LuigiMountRushmore.com has one word. Great. We'll link to that in our show yeah, notes. You can find all of these documents, the original source documents. We shared these documents with Mount Rushmore as far back as 1990. We have continued to share them with myriad superintendents, chief of interpretations, park rangers from 1990 till today. And they came back with the same answer. Your grandfather was part of a team. There was no I in team. We only acknowledge Guts and Borlam as the designer and his son, Lincoln, and the rest are credited as uh, a group. And we've been basically fighting that policy for the past 25 years, showing them the documents, documents that are so irrefutable you can't even begin. I mean, just the quotes that I made before. I mean, one of those was enough to, uh, to give him special credit. And the fact that Borlam had to pay him out of his own pocket to keep him showed that he was that important. So not too long ago, I made a breakthrough with Mount Rushmore and I did, I, I have a one man show. I'm a storyteller by trade and a singer. And I actually do a, a one man show where I bring my grandfather to life. And they allowed me to go into the sculptor studio where my grandfather worked with Borglum, working on the models to transfer the measurements to the mountain. And so in 2011, I stood there dressed like my grandfather in knickers, <laughs> 35 portraying him in the same studio where we actually worked. And it was just, it was just transcendent for me. And all the people who saw the shows were like, why don't we know about him? Why isn't Mount Rushmore honoring him in some way? I said, well, that's why I'm here. So I thought I had made some sort of breakthrough, but unfortunately the new chief of interpretation just went back on that policy. A couple of years later, a gentleman named Doug Gladstone, a journalist, heard my aunt Gloria and I on NPR, he took up kind of the gauntlet and he wrote a book called Carving a Niche for Himself, the untold story of Luigi Del Bianco. 
Great. makes an interesting case about why Luigi's not being honored relating to potential uh, bigotry and racism. I don't have any proof of racism or bigotry, but it's an interesting book to read. And it also goes into my grandfather's story. I do want to end this with some really, really good news. I just wanted to give you some, some history about the struggles that we've had. Not too long ago, after speaking to so many people, I connected with, uh, I decided to go above the heads of Mount Rushmore and connected with, the, uh, with Cam Sholly, who is the uh, director of all the national parks for the Midwest region of the country. I had spoken to his predecessor and couldn't get anywhere. And I don't know whether I was more passionate than usual, whether it was luck and timing, whether I just finally got somebody who, who got it. But he heard me quote all of these documents over the phone and he said, this is really compelling stuff. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send two of my top historians to your house. You're going to go through these documents with them with a fine tooth comb and they're going to make a recommendation whether uh, to honor your grandfather in some special way. The historians came, I sat there, read these documents, I actually broke down a couple of times because I felt like I think this is finally gonna happen. I feel myself sitting on the shoulders of my grandfather and my Uncle Caesar you know, while, while I'm reading these documents. And by the fifth document, out of 60 documents, the head historian said, okay, you got, you sold me. Let's go have lunch. I mean, he- That's he, terrific. He like, and they were both. Why hasn't Mount Rushmore done anything about this? And I, so all I can say to them was, they always politely said he was part of a team and a story. Was this recently, Lou? This was in October of- October of 2015. Okay. So they made the recommendation, and because this is the 75th anniversary of Mount Rushmore, on their Facebook page, they have been profiling the different, quote, workers, and for the first time, they acknowledged him as the chief carver, which is, you know, you think that's a no-brainer, but based on the past 25 years, that was huge, you know? Okay, now that said, they are in talks about how to permanently recognize him. So my grandfather is going to get permanent recognition. They're just trying to decide what form it will take. And I don't know what kind of politics or red tape that they're having to deal with, whether there's going to be pushback from anyone at Mount Rushmore, because quite frankly, they have resisted this for years. And now they're basically being told, you need to recognize him. And well, again, congratulations. Yeah, That's congratulations. incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that your grandfather, your uncle, they're all smiling down on you. I'm particularly gratified when somebody sends me an email and calls me and it's, and it's another Italian-American and they say, what a great image for this country Absolutely. Of, of an Italian-American who's an artist, you know, to kind of, I don't know distract a little bit temporarily, or maybe maybe more than temporarily, the stereotypical image that we always find right. ourselves saddled with. You know what I'm talking about. Obviously. Sure. No, absolutely. And, and Lou, we thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your story because it is definitely a touching one. And, and unfortunately, it's probably something that happened often to a lot of Italian immigrants because we've heard stories, maybe not with the size of like a Mount Rushmore, but it just happened too often. We will definitely connect to Lou's website so you can learn more about his grandfather and what he accomplished. And Lou, just thanks again so much for coming on and sharing the story. All right. And a quick shout out to my buddy, Marshall Tapa, who turned me on to your podcast. I'm really glad he did. Thanks, Marshall. Thanks, Marshall. Yeah.
<laughs> talented uh, Italian American Marshall Tapo. Yeah. Terrific. We appreciate that. All right. I hope you enjoyed that touching story. It is really great to see an Italian-American following up on their family history and, and helping a relative to get recognized. It was beautiful. All right. So before I kick it over to Dolores here to take us out of this one, let me once again recognize our sponsor for this segment of the show, Select Italy. Everything you need for optimum travel to Italy is possible with Select Italy. And now, thanks to Select Italy, you can combine yoga with your next Italian vacation. Join Ariana Sertoli, a certified holistic health coach, self-trained chef, and yoga teacher in early September for a yoga retreat in the enchanting region of Puglia, the heel of Italy. Experience a unique vacation in the name of adventure, wellness, healthy food, Italian wonders, and yoga practice. Visit selectitaly.com forward slash yoga for details. All right, Dolores, take us out. Well, once again, as I mentioned in the intro, just a reminder that if you want to receive exclusive videos and audio from us, we'll be rolling out some items that we're working on here now. You're going to need to sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. And our first video is going to be How to Jar Tomatoes. So you can do that by visiting ItalianAmericanPodcast.com and clicking the Join Us tab. Other than that, we are on social media. We are at Instagram at Italian American. We are on Twitter at Ital American. That's I-T-A-L American. And we are on Facebook at Italian American Podcast. Da nostri cuori.